everybody. How we doing? Find my place. I want to tell you a story about a friend of mine. Um, I'm going to change her name. She might watch online. I don't know. Uh, hi. Uh, her name, we're going to call her today Danielle. I met Danielle about um, eight years ago. I had just become the pastor of this little church in Indiana. And it was my second Sunday teaching. And I was walking through this letter in the New Testament called First Peter. I was teaching the same exact passage that we're going to look at today. Danielle had just felt this tug in her life that something was amiss. She needed to kind of get back into, into church because she wanted to figure out how she could have her life make sense. And I met her after I taught First Peter, and, 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 and she was waiting for me after uh, I came down off the stage. And I could just tell life had been hard on Danielle. You just see it in the way that she carried her, herself and, and her face. It just had been hard. And she looked at me and she said, um, Dan, I, I really want to know God the way that you're talking about him through Jesus. Everything you said today, I want to be true in my life. How do I follow Jesus with my life? And I thought, if this is happening on my second day in this church, gosh, we're in for a good ride. Uh, it didn't make it about me. I, I looked at her and I said, Danielle, you got to know Jesus. She said, well, how do you do that? I said, well, let's, let's pray and then let's take a journey together and see how he changes you. And so we prayed together. She gave her life to Jesus. Her husband was not quite ready at that moment to do the same thing, but he just kind of watched and approved of everything that was going on, I guess. And he just kind of loomed in the background. And, and she walked out that Sunday just so different than she walked in. She had a joy. She had an excitement. She had a, a pep in her step that was uncommon. She walked back in the church the next week and after the service, same thing happened. I walk off the stage. I, I see my new friend, Dan, friend Danielle, and she looks at me and she goes, Dan, I have a bone to pick with you. I said, gosh, you're already one of those church people. Okay, great. <laughs> that was a pastor joke, sorry. Uh, she, she goes, I got a bone to pick with you. I don't know if it's working. I was like, what, what are you talking about? She goes, well, I, I did the thing, I prayed the prayer, and I don't feel any different. And in fact, this week, I had nothing but arguments with my son, and I've never not gone along with my son, but now he just thinks I'm this religious nut, and it's causing all this friction. Am I doing it wrong? And I was like, oh, well, no, Danielle, it's okay. We're, let's, hey, this is something we can invite God to be in and part of, and let's pray. And so we prayed together, and she walked out really encouraged until the next week she walked back in. This is a true story. She walked back up to the front of the stage. I got off the stage, and, and she looked at me. She goes, Dan, it's really not working. I said, well, what do you mean, Danielle? She goes, well, I was up for a promotion this week, and I've been really looking forward to it, and I thought it was a lock, but apparently my coworkers don't appreciate that I found Jesus, and they don't like me talking about him, and so they gave it to somebody else who everybody likes more than me because apparently this is making me unpopular. And I was starting to realize, like, oh, Yikes. Um, I was like, well, you know, uh, Daniel, even Jesus said that, you know, people are not going to like you because of him, and that's okay, right? Like, keep your chin up. Let's keep going. And it, and it was the fourth week that I remember this so clearly. She walked into the church. She didn't even wait for service to end. She walked right up to me, and she looked at me, and she said, Dan, I have cancer. Now, 
Now, there's things that um, you get trained to do in schools that help you be a pastor. This is one of those things that you're trained in how to respond. And I found myself at an utter loss for words. And so we cried and we hugged and her husband was crying and we hugged and it was okay that I didn't have words because she had the perfect words for the moment. These words that she said, I'll never forget them, they're seared on my soul. She pointed her finger at me and she said, you told me that following Jesus would make my life better. Ever since I started following Jesus, my life has gotten harder. And isn't that a paradox of faith? That sometimes we come to Jesus with these expectations that our life is finally going to be put back together and it actually just makes what we're walking through harder. I think this is a paradox in the Christian life that deserves some of our attention. I actually don't know that we've talked about this enough as a people of faith. This, this whole uh, dynamic of when we come to Jesus, we get all of these incredible benefits, but at the same time, we don't necessarily realize those benefits in the moment. It can feel to a lot of us like investing in your company's 401k. You know that out there in the future is going to be some great payoff, but right now it's costing you a lot of money that you'd like to play with. And I, I think this is a really important topic for us as a church because faith in Jesus has never been about getting rich quick or getting our lives back in order immediately. Everyone, I think, needs to hear this from me today. Faith in Jesus is, in my opinion, the greatest decision that any person can ever make. When you find your salvation in Jesus, it makes the whole world make sense. This is a great place for you to amen if this has been your experience. The whole world starts to make sense and it gives a grounding to your life that nothing else can match. Have you experienced that? Yeah, I have too. But how many people know that it doesn't guarantee prosperity, health, or popularity? In fact, ever since the beginning of our faith itself, that, that first day, that, that first Easter Sunday, gosh, I feel like a one-trick pony lately, but I'm just going to bring us back to the resurrection again. Hope that's okay with you. Remember that day, Jesus has just risen, the disciples have just gone and see the tomb, and then they come back, and they're in the room where they had the Last Supper, the upper room, and what are they doing? They are hiding for fear of what? For fear of the people outside. They weren't afraid of Jesus. They were afraid of how the people around them were going to respond to the fact that something was amiss and their very lives were put at risk. The greatest event in the history of humanity had just unfolded hours earlier and it caused them to be people who were stuck behind a locked door. <laughs> and Jesus shows up and he gathers them together and shows them his hands and his, his side and says uh, that, that you'll receive my spirit. And, and he gives them not a, a spirit of fear, but of peace. And these followers of Jesus are so emboldened that they go out from the room. They leave the safety of what they have. They take this very precious truth about who God is and what he's done, and they take it to the corners of the earth. Thomas, the one who's the doubter, he goes to India, we believe. He takes the furthest journey because he so wants every person in the world to know this miraculous Savior, Jesus. This guy named Peter who, who ran this fishing enterprise, this local entrepreneur in town, 
He gave up all of his nets and his boats, and he decided to go on journeys for years to tell everyone around the, the, the known world that Jesus was alive. There's this guy named Paul who was one of the people who approved the crucifixion of Jesus. And he himself gives up everything when he realizes that Jesus is alive, that the story is true, that it's changed everything. And he gives himself. And at every turn, these followers of Jesus are not made more popular or prosperous, but instead their faith in Jesus has not become a luxury or a leveling up, but a liability. And this is one of the things that I actually think makes the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually true, is that these People gave up their very lives for this message. People don't give up their lives for a lie. But they were willing, Peter was willing, to go to Rome, to tell people boldly about this Jesus, to look the systems and structures of this world square in the face and say, Jesus is greater than what you are doing. And he was hurt for it. He was killed for it. One of the letters that was written to the early followers of Jesus who found themselves in this situation where they were totally radically changed by Jesus, but it actually created some um, social exclusion amongst them in the situations where they lived. There, there was this letter written by Peter. Peter, this fisherman who was the one who cut off the guy's ear in the garden. And Jesus had to look at Peter and say, put away your sword. And then he, he healed the, the, the Roman soldier right in front of Peter. Peter, the same one who betrayed Jesus three times the night that he died. Peter, the one who three times at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus has to look at him and say, will you feed my sheep? Will you help me on this mission? Will you take care and encourage those who follow me? even though it cost them so much. Peter takes Jesus' words seriously, and he writes to a group of people who are in this situation. Following Jesus has cost them something. Peter writes his letter to people who have come to believe in Jesus but have hit hardships and misunderstandings in society. Uh, their stores were boycotted and their associations dwindled. And these early followers of Jesus might have asked the same question that my friend Danielle asked me. If this is what it's like to follow Jesus, then what's so great about this salvation? If this is what it's like to actually follow Jesus, what's so great about it? And Peter, having an answer to that question about how to get through hard times and see the value in what God is doing, he pens these words. And for the next nine weeks, we're going to just as a church kind of walk ourselves through the entirety of Peter's thought. We're going to just model for ourselves what it is to look at in a, a large chunk of the Bible. We're not going to go word by word, but we're going to go thought by thought. And I hope by the end of the, these couple of weeks, you will um, you know, play that game that nerdy Christians like me play when they're falling asleep, which is my favorite Bible, book in the Bible. I play that game, and I hope First Peter is one of your favorite books in the Bible. I hope that when you think about what God has done, you think about this letter that was written to people who faced situations different than ours, but so alike as today. Let me jump into it. You guys all ready? Are you with me today? Yeah. All right. There's a lot of heavy stuff. I'm great, grateful for the Yelps. That's great. Here's, here's how Peter starts it. His opening letter. Remember, he's a fisherman. Um, this whole thing is one run-on sentence. We'll just get through a little bit of it. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, ancient letters, this is how it would start. You just start with the name of the person writing it and then your title. He just says an apostle of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say anything more about himself. 
And he says, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are just um, modern-day Turkey. That's where that is. These are people who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. That's a lot of church talk. We'll get into that in a second. But he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If it ever feels like I talk a lot about the resurrection, it's because the Bible talks a lot about the resurrection. It's because the resurrection is the craziest, most important thing that's ever happened in the history of humanity. What Peter says is that praise is coming to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because in God's mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That this great apex of humanity has done something for us. What's so great about salvation, Peter wants to tell us three reasons that salvation is great. In the next couple of verses, what he's going to say is essentially salvation is so great that no matter what you're going through, you got to hang on to these three reasons because they'll help you make sense of your life when times are tough. They'll help you understand how to keep relationship with your son when it's stressed. They'll understand how to, how to help you make sense of the world when you get overlooked for a promotion because of your faith. They'll help, they'll help you endure the days when you get your own diagnosis. You need to know why salvation is so great. And Peter's going to help us know why is salvation so great? Why is it not worth trading on salvation? And the first reason that Peter's going to give us is simply this, is because salvation, it reveals to us the great mercy of God. Mercy. Can you say mercy with me? Mercy. If you say it like Elvis, it's even cooler. Uh, salvation reveals God's great mercy. Mercy. Um, mercy is kindness to someone who is in need. Here in Kansas City, there is this, you know, jewel of our healthcare system for kids. Children's Mercy Hospital. I became acquainted with Children's Mercy Hospital a couple of months ago. My daughter uh, cut her eye, like right here, and um, I didn't realize it was a really bad cut. I thought she'd just shake it off. And actually, when I heard that she was bleeding, I was like, that's fine, tell her to deal with it. And my seven-year-old looked at me and said, essentially, don't be a bad dad. <laughs> paraphrasing this, what I, my soul heard. Help your daughter. And so we're running outside where she is, and she's just bleeding profusely. We took her to the urgent care. Urgent care said, we're not feeling like we can tackle this in a way where her senior pictures won't look jacked up. So take her to Children's Mercy, because a plastic surgeon will help you there. And so we took her to Children's Mercy Hospital. Important Mercy, mercy is helping someone who can't help themselves. Mercy, we learned at Children's Mercy Hospital, is not expedient. Okay, mercy sometimes takes time. We learned this in the waiting room of the ER at Children's Mercy Hospital. It just took hours. But she was helped in a way that she couldn't help herself. That's what a hospital does. A hospital takes in someone who is sick, someone whose ailments are beyond their own coping or beyond their own repair. It gives them an act of mercy. It puts kindness into their life to help them heal. God is a God of mercy. Great mercy, Peter tells us. God's mercy is both encouraging to us and is deeply offensive 
You see, God's mercy, while it reveals his kindness to us, is always attached to God's judgment, which is not an easy thing for us to think about. In Judaism, where Christianity has its roots and Jesus came out of, the idea of God's judgment is just a given. Now, we struggle with judgment today, but in Judaism, it's just kind of like a thing. It's just, it's the basis of the whole law. The law of Moses is very much do this and you'll be blessed. Don't do this and you'll be punished. And when Jesus was born, one of the things that the prophets said about him was that it was like the sunrise coming from on high, whereby the mercy of God would appear. Jesus is the kindness of God who has made manifest to us. That is the encouragement, is that God has done something for us. Here's the offensive part. You ready? Hang on. It implies that you and I are helpless. Ouch. I don't, I don't like to be helpless, Clay. I don't like it. You know me. I don't like to be the guy up there swinging a baseball bat, missing every time. I want to help myself. Right? I want to put myself on base. I want to be able to accomplish my job by myself. I want to care for my kids. I want to be self-sufficient, self-sustaining. I'm a responsible adult. I can care. I'm mature. I can, care. I can carry the weight of my own life. But by definition, the mercy of God means he looks at me and says, you can't. You're actually bleeding. You're wounded. You're helpless. It's as if God looked across the history of humanity and looked at us and he saw us wandering far from home as if we didn't know the way back to him. We didn't even know if home was a place that we could get to. And into this world, into our situation, God sent himself to be the kindness, to show us the way back to him. Not just to show us the way, but also to make the way possible. That he took our judgment upon himself and he offers us something that we could not get ourselves, which is forgiveness. God's great mercy is shown to us in salvation. And I could preach this one simple idea for the next four weeks, but we don't have that type of time. Hang in here with me. I want to show you the benefits of this mercy. The benefits of God's mercy is that it creates something new inside of us. What, what's new inside us because of this mercy? Well, look at verse 3 again. It says, um, because of the, God's great mercy that he's given us, new birth. Now, you don't have to be physically born again. We're, so many babies are being born at Heartland right now. It's so fun to see God blessing families right now and adoptions happening and all these amazing things. Um, but uh, one time being born is enough for everybody. But there's something about this mercy that's like a new birth. You know what that means? It's a new beginning. Jesus looked at Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and said, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus got caught up on the mechanics of it all, and Jesus said, no, it's a spiritual birth. It's a way for you to, to imagine the fresh start, the new life that God's given you. Into what? We're, we're given a new birth into a new hope. It's a living hope. Why is it a living hope? This is a great place for an amen. It's a living hope because Jesus is alive. If, if you ever wonder, like, in church, when do I do that? That, like, yeah, thing. Whenever we say Jesus is alive, that's your cue. <laughs> it is great mercy God's given us a new birth into a living hope because Jesus is alive, right? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This new birth has given us a new identity. Just like you have a child in this world, you name them and that becomes their identity. When you came to Jesus, 
you're given a new start through the mercy of God and a new identity. If I backed up, if you got it open in your copy, verse one, Peter calls these people who he's writing to elect exiles. This is the identity of the people that Peter is talking to, elect exiles. We have candidate elect, you know, people who have, who have been voted into office but aren't yet in. What does it mean to be elect? I don't want you to get hung up on that word. It just simply means to be the special people of God. That, that you're a part of something that God's doing that's really, really special. You're, you're given a new identity. But Peter calls these people elect exiles. We would think that special people get special privileges. But Peter is writing to elect exiles, refugees, people who are on the run, people for whom their special position has not given them special privileges. They were special people not in a special place. They were asking the question, when everything's out of sorts, how do I trust Jesus in the midst of this? And Peter reminds them of the greatness of God's mercy that has changed their birth, their new beginning, their new identity. And then in verse 4, he goes on to say, you not only are born into a new family, but you've got a new inheritance that can, watch this, never perish, never spoil, and never fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Amen. Watched the Harry Potter movies the other day, and um, you know that Gringotts is like that, that bank in Harry Potter where like nothing can get in or out without the goblin's permission? I kind of wish I had that for my uh, stuff here on earth. But um, heaven will do just fine. Peter is using the phrase that is maybe foreign to elect exiles. He's telling them, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of refugees, they don't typically bring with them a U-Haul to the new country that they're moving to. They typically flee with a bag and what's on their back. To these people, these special people, Peter is telling them that when you came to Jesus, you received God's mercy. His kindness to you was such that you got a fresh start. You got a new family. You got a new name. You got a new identity. And you got a new inheritance. One that will never spoil, rot, or decay. I don't know if you think, um, I don't know if you think you're from money. If you think you're from money, that's great. The story I'm about to tell proves that none of us come from money. But um, whatever the inheritance is in your life that you're banking on, it is not an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. We just live in too much of a consumeristic society for this to not be true. You will spend and find a way to spend down all of your inheritance. And here's how I know. Have you ever heard the story of the Vanderbilts? Cornelius Vanderbilt, 1870s, became a railroad tycoon. He had more money than the U.S. Treasury. Cornelius Vanderbilt took a $100 loan and he turned it into a $100 million company. He died having given a lot of his money over to his, uh, in his kids. One of his kids took that $100 million company and turned it into a $200 million company. One of his kids built this, right? This isn't even railroad money. This is like the lineage of railroad money. This is the Biltmore um, estate. Has anybody ever been there? Asheville, uh, North Carolina, really pretty. Um, today, this is owned by the National Parks Department, I think, owns this. Why is that? Because while this represented just one of the, the many descendants of Cornelius Vanderbilt who built this beautiful thing, today, the entire Vanderbilt family is bankrupt. Less than 100 years after Cornelius Vanderbilt died. 
The, the greatest inheritance, they, I mean, the phrase is they had more money than God, right? I mean, like, the greatest amount of wealth vanished. There's one person from the Vanderbilt family who's doing well. Uh, do you know who it is? Anderson Cooper is from the Vanderbilt lineage. He's sixth generation. And guess what? His mom gave him nothing. He goes around all the network TVs telling us about it. Whatever it is that we hope in in this world, it will vanish. It is subject to decay. It can disappear, but not the hope that we have in Jesus. The salvation of your souls is so deeply secured by what Jesus did that you can bank your life upon it. A living hope into this new inheritance that is imperishable, incorruptible, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It means that everything that God promised will come true someday. Hope in the Bible is never hope so, like hopeful thinking or wishful thinking. Hope is a strong, assured confidence that what God said he would do, he will do. How do you think this would hit you if you were an elect exile who had been scattered from their house on account of Jesus? For Peter to remind you how great is salvation. It's so great that God gave his life for you in his mercy. And he gives you all the blessings of Jesus too. And it would help me endure the small things in life. It would help me to keep going. We have this inheritance because the same way you and I get an inheritance, someone has to die. And so Jesus, the, I learned this word between services, the testator, the one who wrote the, test, the, the, the last will and testament, gave up his life. But he's unique in all of this because he also came back from the dead, which means he's also the executor of the same will that he testated in the first place. He wrote it, he died, he came back to life, and he himself distributes it on our behalf so that you and I can experience the riches of God in this life. How, how good is salvation? How great is salvation? So great that it shows us God's mercy. He's kind, he's loving, he's good. And he gives us the living hope of Jesus. So when my friend Danielle is struggling with whether or not God loves her, the answer isn't to look at her circumstances, but to look at the living hope of God within her put there by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Her identity is no longer about the people at her job, but how she is prized and cherished by her God. It's, it's, her inheritance isn't health or happiness, but the insurmountable joy knowing that God has the best for her ahead. And that's what Peter tells us next. He says salvation is great, not just because it reveals the mercy of God, but because it results in our great joy. What's amazing about Jesus? Well, listen to what Peter says about faith in Jesus, how it changes everything for us. He says, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, knowing that these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire. You see what I mean about the run-on sentences? Peter's kind of like, he could tighten this up a little bit. It says, all of this trials have come to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed, though you have not seen him, you love him. Isn't that true? Never seen Jesus and yet my heart is completely devoted to him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy 
for you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation, the security of your souls. What's great about salvation, it brings joy. There is nothing in this world that can touch your soul the way God's forgiveness, his loving kindness, and his purpose can. I, I will be exceedingly happy next week when the Chiefs win. You'll be happy too. <clears throat> I had words with God last week, privately, because I don't want to make the stage about NFL stuff. That's so secondary. The NFL will not matter. We're going to be playing Quidditch in heaven. Um, there'll be no NFL. But I talked to God last week. I was like, God, your word says that the enemy roars like, like a lion. And I said, the Bengal is like a lion. And you say, resist the devil, flee from you. And so we resisted the devil last week. I was happy. I'm at an impasse because the Bible always speaks positively about eagles. So I'm not sure what to do with that. But next week, when they win, I'll be happy. God forbid they lose. We have people you can see about that. But it'll only be temporary. I'll be ecstatic in my life if my kids choose somebody really, really sweet to marry. But if they do get married to someone who I think clears my bar of high expectations for marrying my daughter, all that stuff, I won't presume that they'll have an easy life. I would even be excited if someone would give me a winning lottery ticket, but it's subject to inflation and taxes and all that stuff. The joy that comes from something that cannot be taken away from you, that is imperishable, that will never fade away, is a joy that your soul craves. Peter's going to shed a lot of light in this series. I hope you come back for every single week about why bad things happen to good people. So just stay tuned. But, but here he said that you rejoice even though now for a little while you've suffered various trials. And the purpose of trials is to prove to you that you have genuine faith. And at the end of my life, I would rather have true genuine faith than money because money cannot buy your soul back from the dead. Faith in Jesus, which does that, is a free gift from God. So what's so great about salvation? It re reveals God's eternally great mercy. It results in our greatest joy. And finally, this, I want to bring this to a close here. Here's what Peter says. Salvation resolves history's great expectations. Look at what he says next. I'm going to point out three groups of people that had expectations for history. He says, concerning this salvation... The prophets, these are like the Old Testament um, people who spoke the word of God to the people out in Israel and Judah. The prophets, they spoke of the grace that was to come to you. They searched intently with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. It's because they realized that God was doing something in history that was going to be beyond themselves. So Isaiah predicted what God was going to do, and he realized this is going to happen far beyond my lifetime, but it's going to happen. And so Jesus came, and he came to these people, and the, they heard the things that were preached by those who have preached. These are the apostles, the gospel, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. 
And then he says this thing which trips up a lot of people. I don't have time to go into it, but just think about this with me. Even angels long to look into you, these things. What Peter is trying to tell us who follow Jesus, who are wondering if salvation is really that great. He says to us, he says, look at the ark of history. Don't look at the ark of your city. Don't look at the ark of your family. Look at the ark of time since time began and time into the future. And notice that from the time that time began, God proclaimed that he was going to do one thing. He was going to save and redeem his people. From that moment, angels peered over the gates of heaven wondering how he was going to bring this about. Curiously longing to find out what God would you do. The angels' greatest interest, those who spend their time in the courtrooms of God, it was, was how would God do this thing for his prized creation, humans on earth. And the prophets told us a little bit. And then Jesus came and people gave their lives preaching the good news to help us know that God has saved us. And today, every time, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. No. <clears throat> every time a sinner turns from the error of their ways and says, I see the mercy of God that I'm helpless and I need him, heaven erupts with praise over one person who finds their way home. The angels' minds are blown. I just can't get over that. They long to look in, to explore, to investigate how God has done it, how he's done all these promises and brought them true in Jesus so that you and I can walk across eternity by faith in him. It's absolutely amazing. So when the scope of history is put before you, Peter, to these elect exiles, these special people without special privileges, he says, when you consider all that God has done throughout all time, what is this momentary trial to you? <laughs> you have faith. You have a future. You have a family. You're going to be fine. When you look across all that God has done through the history of this world, what is the temporary struggle that you're enduring? And I wonder if us here at Harlan, just like the elect exiles that Peter was writing to, if we experience, if we experience faith in a way where it doesn't match our expectations, Peter is just saying, hang in there. It gets better in the end. I want to end this um, opening introduction to 1 Peter, kind of where we started today. Because the story of my friend Danielle is a really good story. It was about two years later. I remember she walked into the church and she didn't care that stuff was going on. She stood in the back. We had these doors right in the back. And she stood there and she's waving a piece of paper like this. She just kind of wasn't a church person. She just didn't really know the decorum of church. She just did this. She's waving it. I come up and then she goes like that to me. <laughs> and I, I was like, uh, Danielle, what, what's up? Uh... And she goes, read it. <laughs> so I looked at it, and it was a bunch of things I couldn't make sense of. I, I realized it was medical, but it was like all this stuff. I'm not a medical person. And she goes, after all the years of testing that I've done and cancer preparation, all this stuff, do you know what this is? This is a sheet of paper from the, the top doctors around here telling me that I never had cancer in the first place. 
To which I said, no one in seminary ever prepared me for this moment. She goes, Dan, I believe God's healed me. And I was like, whoa, 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 let's not be crazy. But I was like, well, yeah. And then she said this, which was so special, it makes it all worth it. She goes, Dan, what's crazy right now is that even if I did have cancer, I actually know that it would be okay. God has walked me through the journey of these past few years, this trial that I've experienced, and my faith in him is so high that I know that even if I was walking it out, he's got better things ahead for me in the end. And I thought to myself, that is what's so great about salvation. It's because you may not see it right away. You may not see it in this lifetime. It may feel overwhelmingly negative to each one of us, but our faith is not that we are home here on this earth. Our faith is that we're home up in heaven. That God's heaven, when it comes to earth, it brings with us the full reign of his mercy and his kindness and his goodness and his joy. That one day we will see the revelation of Jesus, which just simply means him as the king of everything. And that part of our souls that is connected to him will just shout and praise that every word you said was true. Even when I didn't feel like you were walking with me, you were there. And we will respond and erupt in the greatest amount of praise ever seen in the history of humanity.